Listen, what's up, everybody? So glad you're joining us. Thank you for listening to the podcast. Thank you for all your support. We're dropping new episodes every month, so please stay tuned, keep listening, and keep subscribing, sharing, downloading everything that you're doing. Listen, I want you to go to the website, www.dearwhiteteacher.com. Lots of exciting information. I have a blog on there. I have my book on there that you can order, and I have my course on there of the same name, Dear White Teacher, where it's talking about understanding relationships with black and brown students, how to build and maintain them, and so much more. Get to the website now, www.dearwhiteteacher.com. Can't wait to meet you. Can't wait to talk with you. As a matter of fact, we can talk now. Join us on social media at dear underscore white underscore teacher on both Instagram and TikTok. Lots of amazing content. Meet us there. Join us there. Looking forward to it. What's up, everybody? Welcome to Dear White Teacher. I'm glad to be back shooting another episode. I'm so excited about today's guest. She is, well, I'll let her tell you who she is, but she's the Dr. Jennifer Ross. What's going on, Dr. Ross? Hello. Thank you for having me on your Thank show Thank you for today. being here. Thank you for excited. being here. Are you really? I am. Good. I'm, I'm always glad to hear that we get to talk about some... Uh, deep down good stuff surrounding education absolutely my so passion. uh that's your passion, my passion. So, good let's talk about that then so tell the people i know who you are but tell the people you know absolutely. the dr ross tell them tell them who you are so um, my name is jennifer ross as you know i'm an educator at heart i currently work at the akron urban league i'm the vice president of diversity education and engagement but just to know a little bit about my history and how I got to this point, um, I started off as a classroom teacher right here in Akron, Ohio. I worked in Akron Public Schools. I was a third grade teacher at Ritzman Elementary School, third grade teacher at Schumacher Academy. Then I moved to Columbus, Ohio and taught in Columbus City Schools for about mm, nine years. Then I was a master teacher in Columbus City Schools where I coached and mentored teachers. Um, always taught elementary school, third, fourth grade. And I'm trying to think, then from there, I enjoyed teaching, but I wanted to. I wanted more of a challenge. So at the time, I was like, "Do I go back for my doctorate? Uh, do I just coach teachers, or do I want to be a principal?" I started working on my uh, doctorate um, in education leadership and leadership development, and saw a niche where I knew that teachers needed to be developed around working with Black and Brown children because you know that's why you have this podcast. Um, teachers struggle with really um, engaging young students and just students in general. So I love coaching teachers. And then from there, I started working at the Department of Education where I worked around, worked with policy, education policy around um, developing teachers. So we did the Ohio Teacher Evaluation System. Then we did the Ohio Principal Evaluation System. Then we did the Resident Educator Program, which was inducting new teachers and what do they need to know um, and how do they assess their skills in working with students. And from there, I then became a coach and I was coaching principals and looking at how do we turn their schools around from a failing school to a high performing school. And then I left the Department of Ed, ended up going to New York, um, working at Columbia Law School, wanted to work with um, Kimberly Crenshaw, Professor Kimberly Crenshaw um, at Columbia University. She's a legal scholar. She's absolutely amazing. Um, she coined the terms critical race theory. She coined the term intersectionality just all around dope and um, she wanted me to come and look at her Black Girls Matter report and look at what we need to do to ensure that black girls aren't pushed into the school to prison pipeline. 
And so from there, worked in her nonprofit agency for a bit, and then my parents became ill, which, which brought me back to Northeast Ohio. Um, I enjoyed working in a nonprofit company, so I joined the Urban League because I wanted to continue the work that I was doing um, at Columbia. So, so I had just told you that we was gonna try and keep this to about 35 minutes. <laughs> I got so many questions out of all of that stuff. Like I, I knew a little bit about your background, but I didn't know all of that. So like, I wish I said it took notes on that. That was so much. Let's go back to a term I've never heard, master teacher. What, yes. what does, tell me about that. So a master teacher, so and what, what was unique about Columbus City Schools is even though we were an urban school, and I, and I noticed that there were a lot of high-performing schools in Columbus. So Columbus has over, they have over like 100 schools. And some of the schools are like really, really low-performing schools. But then some of the schools are the best in the country. So you have this unique set of schools where I ended up my first year at Wyland Park, which is in the short north which was like a rough school. And so what was interesting is I would be walking, like every day I would like go out and walk out to the store for lunch or whatever, and folks were like, are you walking out in the neighborhood? Because I didn't realize that the short north was the hood. I thought like I was on OSU's campus, I was safe, and no, not even close. So working with that vulnerable population of students, I was really successful. But my first year at Ellen Elementary and my, sec in my second year of teaching at Schumacher Academy, my students performed high on like the statewide assessments. And people would be blown away like, how do your students perform so well? So because I was highly successful in urban spaces with students who were deemed to be low performing students, um, they then wanted me to coach other teachers on the techniques that I used to get my students to perform at high levels. So. From there, I was going into the classrooms, evaluating teachers. As a teacher, I was evaluating teachers and coaching them on their teaching practices, um, coaching them on how to build relationships with students, coaching them on teaching strategies. So I would go in their classrooms, observe them teach. I would even co-teach with them. And then after school, I would do professional development with the teachers in the building to develop and enhance their skills and capacity to be more um, impactful with the students they were engaging with. So as a master teacher in the teacher advancement program, which was at maybe six of the schools in Columbus City, um, we would do that. We had mentor teachers who were classroom teachers that were model teachers that other teachers could go visit and observe and learn how to teach from. And then I was a master teacher where I wasn't in the classroom, but still my job was the same thing. Go around, coach, support, and develop teachers. And um, from that, the model that they developed around master and mentor teachers and how we evaluated the teachers ended up turning into the Ohio teacher evaluation system. The same rubric we used to evaluate the teachers and the coach the teachers was similar to the rubric that we used to evaluate teachers on across the state and that they still use to evaluate teachers on across the state. So what, does that, what did that look like? Did, would a principal say, this teacher needs you, or was it a like school-wide thing? Like, how would, how would a teacher get connected to you? Were they low-performing, or what did so that So really, like? like, so it's kind of like the mindset of, in, in, a, in, a, in, a teacher, in the teacher advancement program, the mindset was that teaching was so complex. Like, even an effective teacher could grow and get better, right? So we knew that every teacher needed to be coached because we were in low-performing schools. Right, but even if you were in a high-performing school, the teachers could still to use to be coached. Because if you look at schools and their effectiveness, it usually comes down to not the teachers, 
but like the type of family home that they come from, right? We know that income and, and the zip code can dictate how schools perform, right? So the mindset that we tried to create within our teachers was like, okay, look at LeBron James. LeBron, nobody's gonna outpractice LeBron James. No one's not gonna, LeBron's gonna get as much training and coaching that he can get to really maximize his performance. Tiger Woods the same way, like he had to perfect his golf swing. And then whenever they changed up the golf courses, he had to go back and figure out how to perfect his golf swing again. So he used coaches. So the idea is that a coach is not for a bad thing. A coach is for people who want to maximize their outcomes. And I think for teaching, that was hard because they felt like, well, if I had to have a coach, that means I'm ineffective. No, we knew that teaching was so complex and teaching was so hard that we always need to look at getting feedback, being coached, and having an outside eye looking at the way that we do things to maximize outcomes because we know that in urban schools and in schools in general, your variable is always changing, right? Because you have a new set of students coming to your classroom every year. So no matter if you perfected your craft with this set of students, they were gonna leave out and you were gonna have a new set come in and you're gonna have to change up everything that you do to ensure that you're maximizing outcomes for them. So when we approached it that way, not that, well, you're not a good teacher, so you need to coach, but because you're effective, let me coach you and see what you're doing and see how we can maximize it. Um, then the poor performing teachers would be like, well, I wanna to coach too, because if high performing teachers have coaches, I want one. And so we used that model to go into the classroom. That made them feel good about it. Mm -hmm, because they knew that coaches were designed to maximize and everybody have to maximize their outcomes, whether you're a good teacher or an effective teacher. I love it. So I feel like I heard you say you all were coaching or in one of your job descriptions, one of, you know, your background is so, so large. What did you, you said something about uh, something you did with black and brown students. What was that? What's that, what we did with black and brown? Oh, um, well, I worked at Columbus, well, we worked at Columbus Afrocentric. I worked at Columbus Afrocentric, but all the schools that I worked in, except for my first school. So the first school I worked in was in Ellet. It was Ritzman. And I was put there by accident because I think a teacher retired and they hired me late when I graduated from college. And I remember walking in Ritzman and they didn't really, we only had like one other black teacher and all the kids were white and you know where Ellet is. Yeah, well, so you gotta pause because people not from Akron, everybody not from Akron not okay. listening. So Ellet is a primarily Caucasian section of the city. Mm -hmm. So there are schools there are primarily attended by Caucasian students. Exactly. Yeah. And one thing I learned when I went from Ellet to Schumacher, mm -hmm. which Big, is an urban mm -hmm. school, primarily right. black, yep. right? Um, when I went there, the first thing I realized in Ellet was that the kids asked questions. Now I remember I would be teaching and they'd be like, stop, Miss Ross, stop, stop, stop. And they would ask me question after question, almost to the point to where I couldn't teach. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, well, if they keep asking me questions, I'm almost giving them the answer, you know? So they knew, like white kids knew to ask questions. And I remember going from Ellet to Schumacher and at Schumacher, I would be teaching and no one would ask questions. They would just be sitting there. And I would be like, so do you all know what I'm talking about? And they would say, yeah. So now I would say, okay, get out your, I'm not gonna tell my age, we don't call the whiteboards. Get out your whiteboards, okay? <laughs> get out your whiteboard. What you really want to say? Chalkboard. <laughs> Get out your whiteboard, all right, and uh, write this problem down. And I would give them a problem and they would all get it wrong. And I would be so shocked, like, okay, if you didn't know what I was talking about, why did you say yes? Or why didn't you stop me and ask me a question, right? And then what I realized is that white kids are conditioned to ask questions, 
they're geared, they're allowed to ask questions. Black kids are conditioned not to ask questions. And they didn't even have the skill set to know, ask questions. From a parenting model. Yeah, they, we're you taught. Know, yeah. You know, you're you talking know, back. You're yeah. being disrespectful yeah. if you're asking questions. Mm -hmm. So like, I had to like stop and say, okay, I need you to ask questions. But that wasn't enough because they didn't even know what questions to ask. So I had to give them question prompts. Like you can just stop and say, I don't know what you just did, or how did you get there, or why did you make the decision to do that. So I had to give them cues on what type of questions they could ask. And so I had to force them to ask me questions because I didn't know what they didn't know if they weren't asking questions. And I had to help them to understand that teachers are there to serve them. So I'm here to ensure you learn. And if you're not learning, I'm not teaching it. And so once they understood that, they have a responsibility to hold me accountable to make sure I understand that they're getting the content that I'm teaching, you know, and if they didn't understand it, there was nothing wrong with it. And I, I would even say, I can't even assign you homework. If you don't know how to do it, I can't assign you homework. That was a big one. Like, oh, we can't get homework. Oh, you're going to get something else, but you're not going to get this for homework because I'm not going to send you home to do something that you can't do. Not a good use of your time. That's a waste of time. And so for me, I started seeing big differences between black kids in urban schools and white kids, and, and, and Elliot, to me, especially, uh, Richmond was more like a rural school. It wasn't really like a suburban school. It was more rural students, if you ask me. But so they were kind of poor. But yet and still, they knew and had skills that our black kids didn't have, which I was just like astonished by, you know. So with all of that experience, you know, the podcast is called Dear White Teacher. So mm -hmm. even between your classroom experience, the master teacher piece, everything you did in New York, um, what have you seen? I mean, we talk about it candidly, just the biggest thing is relationships and white teachers and how they um, work with our black and brown students. Mm -hmm. What are some things that you've seen, noticed, had to work through or coach or anything to that? So one thing, and, and so we know that teaching, like especially in urban spaces, is cultural. So even whenever I went to, like, when I, okay, going from Schumacher, that was one thing. I was cool at Schumacher teaching as a black teacher. When I went to Wyland Park, when I went to Columbus and their, their schools in urban, urban spaces, I realized I was disconnected. So if I'm from the hood and I'm not, and I'm disconnected because there's a cultural gap just based on the expectations that my parents set for me coming from a two-parent home, coming from a Christian home, coming from just having expectations, you know, and you're going to do certain things, and that this generation of parents are, you know, they didn't have the same expectations that I came with. So I, there was a gap for me. So I knew that if there's a gap for me and I'm looking like, well, I don't quite understand the culture, imagine what it is from a person, for a teacher that's coming from a completely different culture than these students. So I was culture shocked whenever I went to... Um, when I first went to Columbus and I had to tap back in, like, okay, you're not that different from these students. Let's just figure out how I'm going to connect to them. And I think that often teachers make the assumption, all teachers, and in particular white teachers, because that's what, that's what you see predominantly working with our black and brown students, they make the assumption that because they have a position of power as being the teacher, um, and they have authority that students have to listen to them and students have to respect them. Um, what I know about brown, black children, black and brown children, and, we, and what I know about the hood is respect is earned. Yes. 
right? And respect is earned. And it's not just given. And so because we walk around with the mindset of just, I don't care that you have this title or you have this position, you, you, don't get, you don't just get respect because of that. You get respect based off of how you treat us. Black and brown kids know who like them and who don't like. You can't mm, fake it. At all. You, it, they know who don't like them. They know who's making fun of them. They know who's acting funny towards them. Mm. And they watch everything because yeah. we're just innate. We're, 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 we're very like observers and we're, we're, we're tapped in. Yeah. And so kids are tapped in at a young age. And I think they underestimate the genius of that in black and brown kids that they don't know any better. They just assume because they're not performing like white kids that they're not smart. But we know smartness looks different, right? Smartness is not all about IQ. And so our students have street smarts. They have grit. They know how to navigate challenging, difficult situations that most folks haven't even been through. So you have to understand the intelligence of what they navigate when they're walking home from school, when they're in their homes. They're navigating things all day long. So when they come to school, they are looking at the white teachers if they're just silly and petty, like, I don't even got to engage or I don't have to listen to you because they don't see the respect both ways. And so I think you have to show them initially that you respect them. But what is respect then, right? So what is respect? And respect is simple, but I think it's hard from a hierarchy perspective. Respect is simply, I listen to you, I hear you, and I see you, right? And so if you're not showing them that you hear them, that you see them, that you understand them, they don't ha- they're not going to listen to anything that you say. So you have to go out. I think as an educator, you have to go out your way to ensure that you show respect to the culture, that you show respect to the students, that you want to know truly about their day and you care about what they've gone through. But you still have to have expectations at the same time. So what you either get, what I've observed with white teachers is, um, they have so much empathy, but they don't have expectations, right? So, man, they just had a hard time. So they want to just give students everything. We'll, we'll take it, and we'll still disrespect you, right? So no, you, you have to work and earn everything you get, even though I do empathize with your experience. But for me, when I'm talking to my students, that's the reason why you have to work that much harder because you have that many more obstacles. You have that many more challenges. So we don't have time to uh, just feel sorry for our situation. We just don't. And half the time, what the teachers don't understand is that the kids don't even know they're in poverty. They don't even know that they have a difficult situation because you only know what you know. So while you're sitting there empathizing, they're looking like we're good. They might even think they're rich in some cases, okay? Because they they are. They don't know why mom has two jobs. (laughs) Right. To them, that's even better. I got my, I'm getting my Jordan. They still getting everything they want. They don't understand what's going behind it, right? So they're not looking like they're, they don't think they're missing out. But I remember I would tell my students, like, we need to take a field trip to a real school. Mm -hmm. Because, like, literally, in the school that I walked into in Columbus, the students were running around. The students were disrespectful. They didn't listen. Um, they didn't even have textbooks in the school. Like, I'm wow. like, okay, you hear about this in California, you know, PS 142. You think of schools like that where there's no textbooks. Mm-hmm. You think of schools, you know, where the kids are just cussing out the teacher in kindergarten, first grade, second grade. You think of those schools, like, not here in Ohio, yeah. where they don't have textbooks. I'm like, where are the books at? They had recess, like, three times a day. They let them play all day long. 
I had fifth graders who were on a kindergarten level that couldn't read. Wow. So for me, I'm like, okay, I got to figure out how to get my textbooks. Mm -hmm. And they had textbooks. All I had to do was call central office. They would go in the warehouse, but they just didn't even have any expectations for the students to think they had to learn. Oh, we don't assign homework. They don't do homework. I mean, they don't do homework. Okay. So the expectations were just in the basement for these students. And they were like, they just don't do homework. Um, their parents, they have too much going on. And, you know, they have too much. You know, they empathize. They over-empathize with the students and wanted to just give them a good time opposed to teaching them how to navigate in the world, which they could do, you know. And so they were empathizing and these kids are passing on to the next grade. Oh, we couldn't retain them. So and, and we weren't even allowed to retain students. Wow. Because... They knew that retention didn't work, and research shows retention don't work, mm -hmm. especially if you're retaining students to go back to the same teacher where they were not successful. Mm -hmm. Or you're retaining teachers and you have a whole third grade group of teachers who don't really know how to close gaps mm -hmm. in student learning. So if I retain you, you're going to stay there, you're going to do the same, same thing, thing and nothing's going to happen. But like, how many kids can you retain? You yeah. got third graders, you got second graders coming to third grade, and I'm going to hold back how many? We don't have enough teachers. Yeah. So mathematically, we can't even do it. We don't have enough space. There's no space. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So even let's go back to even when you were preparing to teach college, as you went through that that journey, did that prepare you for the classroom? Even from a like, so one thing we always talk about is the concept of college teaches you to teach, but is not teaching in, in this construct anyway. It's not telling white teachers what they're going to be up against because. One concept we also always talk about is like student teaching. Mm -hmm. So student teachers are sent out most of the time, some of the time, suburban schools where everybody looks like them. Then they come out of college, those jobs aren't available. They're mm -hmm. sent to urban schools. Now we got culture shock. Right. So I went to Walsh University. Okay. Catholic school. I didn't know at the time, but like Walsh University was like the top school probably in Ohio for teachers to pass their practice, which was at the time the teacher evaluation to assessment to get your teaching license. So like Walsh had like a high level of students uh, passing that, like 100% of the students that came out of their programs passed the practice. But then also Walsh was so ridiculous, like I remember sitting in class and like we would have to do like a thematic unit, like write a unit where we would include math, English, uh, health, science, like a whole unit. And it would be worth 10 points. And I'm like, we writing like a five page unit for 10 points. And then we would have to present it. And like Wash would be like, if you come to class late, that's a point taken off. If you leave early, that's a half point taken off or come, you know, you know. So like, if you didn't come to class, that's three points. And so you knew that you needed every single point. So one, I had to come to class because I didn't, if, I, if one point's taken off of a 10 point scale, I'm at a B. And their, uh, their grading scale was like 94 to 100. Okay. 87 to 93 was a B. So if you got an 86%, you were at a right, C. C already. So like they had such rigorous expectations and they had us write in thematic units and lesson plans every single day that when I, I can say one thing, Walsh prepared me how to write a lesson plan, okay? But I think writing a lesson plan, creating lesson plans, is, is a part of teaching. But there's the other side called pedagogy, right? And pedagogy is the way in which you deliver your instruction. 
So I'm never worried about like teachers be like, oh, they're gonna steal your lesson, steal my lesson. But you can't teach it like I teach it. That's the pedagogy. The pedagogy is the, the strategies that I utilize within teaching the lessons, how I disseminate the information that I'm gonna to my students. Pedagogy is the way in which you teach, right? So I don't think we think about pedagogy and how pedagogy shifts and changes depending on who's in front of you, right? So if I have, even though I did teach my white kids somewhat similar to my black kids, because there's a study that was done and they asked all these students, they asked, and they asked white kids, black kids, who's the best teacher? And like when they looked at culturally, like, and overwhelmingly, all the kids said black teachers teach better than white teachers. Really? Overwhelmingly, I'll, okay. share, I'll share the study with you. Okay. So I think there's something about the way in which we teach, in which we talk, which is kind of like a call and response, kind of like church, right? So if I'm talking and I'm teaching, if I'm teaching and I know I have a student that's going to disengage because he's always daydreaming or whatever, I would say things like, so Brandon, when I want to look at my base 10 blocks, by me just saying that student's name, I'm pulling, I'm pulling him back in, mm -hmm. right? That's culturally competency. That's so I'm, I'm talking to him. So Brandon, you see what I said? <laughs> yeah. you, you, are you with me, Brandon? Yeah, yeah, I'm with you. So we're talking back and forth yeah. in my teaching. I'm never just standing and teaching. I'm walking around, I'm touching them. And when I, like, I might just be teaching, but I might just put my hand on your shoulder. But that's me re-engaging you, right? So there's a lot of little things that effective teachers do, which is why we encourage teachers to record themselves. That's why we encourage teachers to watch highly skilled teachers teach so we can unpack all those small things that they're doing that you don't even catch. Like every time she says his name or her name, she's engaging that student, right? Every time she's standing next to that student, because we know proximity is a strategy. I'm engaging that student. If my students know whenever I'm teaching, they can get a clipboard and move around the room because I know boys can't sit still. So I'm not expecting you to sit at your desk. If you want to sit on your, put your feet up on your chair and sit up like that, if you want to get up and come sit on the floor, I don't care where you sat in my classroom as long as you were paying attention. So they, because one thing I think white teachers have to understand is that the classroom is the student's room. It's not your room. That's their room. The school is the community's room. The school belongs to the community, not the teachers, not the principal. This is their space. So if they can't navigate with ease in their space, that's a problem, right? So this is your classroom. This is our classroom. Let me make it clear. It's our and it's my classroom too, but it's our room. So I need you to be able to navigate. I need you to have all the tools. And what I would watch teachers do is things like they don't have their pencil. You're going to argue over a pencil. You're going to start an argument with a kid that probably woke up with an effed up day over a pencil? You don't put 20 pencils in that basket and they can get as many pencils as they want. Cause yeah. I'm not about to even start a fight yeah. with certain students. Go get your pencil, right? Because the goal is to set them up for success. So you get all the, t when you walk into my space, you got everything you need to be successful. You got all the paper, all the pencils, all the resources. You can move how you want to move as long as you're being respectful. So I think that's most important that one, because we know if we think about Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? They gotta have their basic needs to feel safe, right? And feeling safe is not just having your materials, it's actually feeling like people can't laugh at me. It's actually feeling like I can ask a question and no matter whether the question is good or bad, it's okay. 
There's no bad question. I don't care what the question is. You can ask whatever you want. And what I found in urban schools is that black kids didn't want to ask the question because they didn't want to say the wrong thing because they didn't want the students to laugh at them or talk about them. You can't laugh at people in my space, right? So we, we can't, you can't laugh at each other. We encourage each other. We help each other. And you definitely ain't putting your hands on each other because that's all the aspect of feeling safe. And so I'm going to make sure you're safe. And I think that we take for granted what safety is. So when I would walk in, when I worked for the state, when I would walk in classrooms, the first thing I would notice is that this is not a safe space. Kids got their hoods up. Kids got, like, they're giving you every cue that they like ready. Like, if you say something, if you touch me, I'm ready. And they're like that because they have to be because their space is not safe. And it might not be the teacher putting their hands on them, but it's other kids putting their hands on them. It's other kids making fun of them, talking about them. It's other kids just being rude or bullying the space. You got to flatten all of that and they have to be safe. So then when you think about classroom management, which is usually the issue that most white teachers struggle with or new teachers struggle with, it's because they don't know how to even the playing field and create a safe space for all kids to feel like this belonged to me and nobody's not going to harm me in there. Mm -hmm. And that's critical because I can't even teach until I got my space right. Yeah. I'm stumped. Like, Gabe, I've just been sitting here like, these are the best interviews when it's really not an interview. <laughs> like, like just, just let them roll, you know what I mean? <laughs> that one, the one piece about the classroom is our classroom. Say that again, and the school is the community. Yeah, it don't belong to the teachers. It don't belong to the principal. And I think that's where teachers get it wrong. You walk in a space and you can't go here and you can't touch this and you can't do, that's their classroom. Yeah. Like that belongs to the students. You know, and when you go to white schools, the parents know that. That's why they got their PTA, their PTO. They are running, they're running the school. They're running the teachers, they're running the principal because that school belonged to them because they pay their taxes. Right. And so I think that schools for black folks are such traumatic spaces. Right. So if you watch like parents don't come in because they were traumatized in that same space by teachers, by kids, by whomever. So they're like, oh, the, the parents don't show up for parent teacher conference. I wouldn't come back to some of these spaces either. And wow. I can remember walking in the classroom and I'm like, oh, I got to get out of here. So I'm thinking in my head, if as an adult, I want to leave this space. And children can't just pick up and leave if they don't like mm -hmm. it. Now, some do. Yeah. Some will walk up out your class and some will cuss you out and yeah. say what they got to say. Yeah. And, um, but for the most part, they're stuck in a toxic environment all day long, right? And it's just not a, it's not a free space. It's not their space. And so until we create spaces that are theirs where they can navigate and they can learn and they can feel free to make mistakes and, and, and just be themselves, you know what I mean? you're not going to get a high level of teaching or learning in that space. It's, it just can't happen because you're not creating that space and that dialogue for students to be able to engage at that level. Even the parents, my parents knew I didn't, you know, they could call me all day long. They had my cell number. They knew I would do home visits. So like for me to get there with them, I had to do home visits. They, had, they could call me, my kids could call me whenever and they didn't abuse it, but they could call me. And they could say, hey, this is going on, or hey, I need you to know this right here. Because I needed to understand the dynamics and what my student was going through to be able to know how I would deal with them that day. And, and what I would find with other teachers is that, like, no, you can't wear a hat in school. But, like, if your dad was drunk and messed your haircut up, 
you can wear a hat in my classroom. I'm not tripping over you over no hat. Yeah. And a lot of the battles start with just not fully understanding the context of the situation that they're in, right? So it's equity in my classroom. Not, it's not equality, it's equity, because you know, you get what you need. Yeah. You ever ain't getting the same thing. Matt's hair is messed up, Matt's hair, Matt's dad was drunk last night, and Matt's dad was drunk today when he brought him in. I know Matt's dad's a good dad. I know he's a good dad, but I know he's going through some things. I know he's not going to harm Matt. But, like, that white teacher's going to call children's services. Or I'm going to talk to him like, look, don't bring him back in here like this again. Because I know Matt is better with his dad than in his system. But that's a, that's a judgment call that we're making, knowing our people, truly going into parents' home, knowing the families. I'm not taking a kid out their home unless I know there's some real, true yeah. neglect and abuse. And often what you would see with white teachers like, oh my gosh, she did this, I'm calling the police, or oh my gosh, you know, and I'm like, no, you can't, because like, they're not trying to harm their children. Lo they love their children the same way you love them. So I think having those conversations, right, to say, you know, are you overstepping your boundary, or do you truly understand the culture to make that type of decision about this family or about this kid, you know, um, and helping the teachers understand when to make those types of decisions, which are hard because college is not going to teach you that. Yeah. College taught me how to write a lesson plan. Did it prepare me to work in Wildland Park? Heck no. Like, I, whenever I was getting ready to cry my first day because I called my mom, I'm like, it feels like a prison. This is not a school. I don't know why I moved to Columbus. You know, like, I don't know what I was thinking. And she's like, you're okay. Like, you'll figure it out. And I just had to figure it out, right? But, like, I was in the classroom all day long. I would go get my daughter, I would come back in the classroom. And I would be working on lesson plans, looking at the students' data, or going to their homes to like seven, eight o'clock at night. Because to be successful in an urban school, you're not gonna do that during the confines of the school hours because it just requires so much more intensity and so much work that it's almost unfair because you're putting in way more hours, way so more work, and you probably should be paid more yeah. to work in those spaces. So what do you say to a white teacher that does not understand the culture in a way that can create a safe space? They want to create a safe space, but they don't know enough. Like, so the, the, the example you gave about Matt and his hair, mm -hmm. that's, a, that's a very, very real scenario. Mm -hmm. um, but off jump, a white teacher may not even think about that. They won't even connect with that. Mm -hmm. So, what can they do to better understand scenarios like that? I think like there's a lot of authors out there that write about it, and uh, Chris Emden is dope. Chris Emden is uh, a, he was a professor at Columbia Law School. Um, he has a book out called "White Folks for White Folks in Teaching the Hood and the Rest of Y'all Folks Too," mm -hmm. and um, he has a whole uh, theory called reality pedagogy that teaches teachers how to engage with black and brown students. Um, so Chris Emden, Gloria Lassen-Billing's been around forever. She writes about culturally relevant pedagogy. Bell Hooks write about teaching to, to, to transgress. And they all write about how to, like successful teachers of black and brown um, students and the characteristics that they have, right? And so I think empathy is not enough. You really have to learn the culture. You really have to understand that teaching is reciprocity. Meaning that we would always say, in order to be effective with your students when we were evaluating teachers, you have to have knowledge of students, like knowledge of students. And so knowledge of students is simply 
knowing your students, knowing how they learn, knowing what they know across content is one thing. So we are, we are always assessing students and we're always scoring them. So we know what they know content-wise. But knowledge of students also is simply, tell me about, your, tell me about you. Yeah. So I needed to know who my students were listening to, mm -hmm. music-wise. Yeah. Whatever was important to them had to be important to me. Mm. Had to be important to me. I wanna know who you're listening to. I wanna know who your favorite athletes are. I wanna know all of your interests. Because if I know what you like, I know how to engage you. Yeah. I, know, I know the hook. Right. And so just if I might say y'all can play y'all's favorite song when y'all come in for the first five, 10 minutes, but doing small little things like letting them play their favorite song and it's going to be ratchet. Yeah. Right. And yeah. I give me the cleanest version you can find. Uh, yeah. Right. And I'm not going to trip over stupid stuff. Like I'm not tripping over a cuss word here and there because they hearing cuss words oh, all yeah, day yeah. long. So I'm not that's not going to throw me off. And I remember my first day in Columbus because in Akron, when a student cussed, we write them up suspension and I was like the little girl cussed me out and I took her to the office the first day and I'm thinking she's about to be in trouble and the principal looked at me like yeah they cuss and I'm like oh like she coming back with me fifth grade she coming back with me after she cussed me out cuss okay. good good <laughs> and so I had to think then okay you know and then too knowing that when you send your students to the office you're, you're relinquishing power right so I knew then you won't be going to the office and coming right back to my classroom. You just can't go to the office. We're going to figure this out in my classroom, right? We're going to figure it out. But I think most importantly, learning from them and respecting them so that they can see that, so they want to have that respect for you. And I learned that just by giving them like five minutes to share their favorite song with me or whatever, that bought me so much time that they would listen to me, you know? But I don't want to, I'm not their peer. I'm not their friend. I just need to know how to tap in, right? And so, because that's another thing that goes wrong with usually new teachers, white teachers, whenever they're trying to be cool mm -hmm. and they're trying to be their friend, that goes disastrous, yeah. you know, because you're not their peer. Yeah. And they have to see, they have to have that respect level. I respect you as a student, but we're not the same, yeah. you know? So I think navigating that is, is a challenge, but also really just learning them and listening to them. And that's what they were saying, well, what am I gonna learn from my students? You're gonna learn what they like. You're going to learn what's going to interest them, what's mm -hmm. going to make them turn around. You learn the culture. Uh, that's everything, culture. right? Yeah. That's, your, that's your shoe in right there. Yeah. You learn the culture. I'm done, man. I, that, that was like, <laughs> like, I don't even, I might need a part two of this. Like, that's <laughs> overwhelmingly rich. You know what I mean? That was great. Like, yeah. thank you. You're welcome. Like, I, I, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm tapped out. I don't even, I really don't even have, <laughs> like, because I, like, I was going to ask you questions about, all right, what strategies? And then you started dropping strategies. I'm like, she don't even need me. All right, you could come and do this. I could have left a long time ago. Yeah. Uh, so this is how we wrap up. That's your camera. Okay. Uh, word of wisdom, you know, whatever you want to lead the teachers with, and then how they can find you if you want to be found. Okay. So my name is Jennifer Ross. Um, Word of wisdom, I think to understand that teaching is so complex. Um, teaching is so hard that you can, never, you can never learn how to do it and just get to a point where you don't have to learn anymore. Um, when you're working with black and brown students, I think John Hattie, he's a researcher, and he talked about how all of these high yield strategies and the strategy that they, he, saw, he saw and that he proved to be most effective was teacher efficacy. 
And that sounds like a big word, that sounds like something really major, but teacher efficacy is just the belief in your students. So he knew that the higher the efficacy that the teacher had around her, their students' ability to learn, the more effective they were. So teacher efficacy is everything. So just the belief, and not just you saying it, but the true belief that your student can learn, that your students are brilliant, that they're geniuses. And we would always say, you're a genius. We call our students geniuses all the time because we truly believe they had the power to learn and do whatever they really worked at doing. So that belief in your students is more than critical. You can reach me at, I'm gonna say the Akron Urban League. I don't really, I'm not on social media um, that much and I don't have a website. So definitely, if you wanna get in contact with me, look up the Akron Urban League, I'm right there. Thank you. I didn't even get to that. That was, oh man, yeah, you gotta come back because <laughs> I had another question. How does your job now with DEI connect with teaching. Yep. Okay. So save it for the next time. Okay. Yep. I gotta have you gotta come back. Yep. I'm gonna I'm gonna leave y'all with that. I want them <laughs> hinging like we wanna know the answer. <laughs> nope. She gotta come back for part two at some point. All right. Thank you so much. Yeah you're welcome. Another episode, Dear White Teacher, thank you so much for tuning in. Uh, another announcement, if you haven't been on the website yet, please visit the website, dearwhiteteacher.com, check it out, uh, take the course, uh, purchase the course. You have to buy the course. We want you to buy it. You have to buy it. Um, but use the uh, coupon code DREAMS and see what the, coup uh, see what the discount is for the day. And uh, other than that, see you next time. Thank you so much, Dear White Teacher. Peace.